Let's pray. Father, I just ask that as we just sang, that you would send your Holy Spirit down to breathe new life in us, revive us again, um, stir our hearts up, fan us into flame, Lord, that we would live before you with great power, great grace, and great fear, as we will learn this morning. pray this in Jesus' name, that you would be with us. Amen. Alright, well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4, and chapter 5. So the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning doesn't neatly rest in any chapter. The section is actually kind of spans the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. It's connected, as you'll see, Acts 4, 32 to 5, verse 11. Now, every group of people that has ever been formed, if you look at a group, you could come up with a, a list of characteristics that you could describe that group with. Um, you say, oh, well, that hunting club is really exclusive. They don't let anybody in. Or the chess team is very welcoming. Or the band has really high standards. Or the business is marked by really shoddy work. Or fair prices. Or good quality. You get the point, right? Um, every group, business, institution, you could use adjectives or things to describe it. And in our passage this morning, the, the writer of Acts, Luke, the gospel writer Luke, he is using three different words to describe three great things about the early community of believers. And I use the word great very specifically here because there are three key words that you, Luke uses to describe the early church in Acts 4, 23 to 5, or 4, 32 to 5, 11. And each thing, each of those three things is accompanied by the word great. Great power, great grace, and great fear. Now, if you're following along in the NIV translation of the Bible, uh, which we often use here, that's what's in the pew, or even like, Saw a translation that some would say, well, it's much more literal. The New American Standard Bible, which I like that one as well. Um, you, you will see one occurrence of the word great is actually lost in translation. Um, so these aren't bad translations, just the way that they translate it doesn't pull out the word great grace. So if you have the ESV or maybe the King James Version, New King James Version, you'll see the phrase great grace in verse 33, and that's in the original. Um, and I'm not saying the other translations are bad, but I think it's important that we actually see great power, great grace, and great fear, because it helps us see what Luke is doing here. So when we read it here, as I'm about to, I'm going to use the ESV translation for this verse, verse 33. So let's read Acts 4:32 to 5:11. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With, verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, so here's, here's what it literally says. If you're reading in the NIV, um, maybe write great in the margin with your pen. 
the text reads, great grace was upon them all. Great grace. Um, so that, here's the result. What did this look like? For there were no needy persons among them. The great grace upon them had eliminated need in their midst. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. This was their helping hand fund. Um, verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This guy sold a field, verse 37, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, chapter 5, that chapter division is kind of weird there. It shouldn't be there. This is all one connected chunk. Now, a man, verse 1 of chapter 5, Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. See how it's connected? Selling property. Um, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried it out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. That was the full amount. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down and died. Then the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So the main idea of these verses together, these stories and the verses around them is that the early church was marked by these three things by great power, by great grace, and by great fear. So we're going to work through each one this morning in turn. So great power is the first one. So after making a brief statement in verse 32 about the, the sharing and the unity of the believers, a statement Luke's going to circle back to and unpack more in verse 34, something he actually already talked about back in chapter 2 at the end in verses 42 to 47. We already preached through that about how they were having all things in common. This is something he brings up again here in verse um, 32 and 34. But now, in verse 33, Luke mentions the apostles were testifying to the resurrection of Jesus with great power. So, the words power and witness, or testify, they reach all the way back to the very beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, to the verse that sets the program for the whole book. You may remember it. It was one of our verses of the month. Acts 1, verse 8. 
Jesus says to the disciples, but you will be, you will receive power, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the Spirit of God is God's empowering personal presence in the midst of his people. And in chapter 3, what we saw previously in our sermon series is that the Spirit was giving power to heal a lame man in the name of Jesus. You may remember what the apostles say when they make the lame man walk. In verse 12, they say, chapter 3, 12, it was not by our power or godliness that this guy was able to walk. No, but in the power of the name of Jesus. That's chapter 4, verses 7 to 10 of Acts, when they're giving the story, what authority do you do it by? Well, it's in the power of Jesus that this happened to this guy. Now in our passage, we see the power of the Spirit to make lame guys jump was also at work empowering the apostles to witness, like Jesus said back in Acts 1, verse 8, would happen. To talk about the resurrection of Jesus takes the power of the resurrected Jesus. The very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead loves to give his people power and open their mouths about the resurrection of Christ. So as these guys would open their mouths to talk about the Lord, the strength of God would rest on them and flow through them and help them to talk about the very God that was giving them out. I'll say a little bit more now about this um, as a kind of an application here. The, the power to speak for the Lord, to open our mouths and say something about God, about the resurrection, about forgiveness in the gospel, often it comes out, often it comes to us as we step out in faith and open our mouths. So imagine, right, you're, you're in a setting where you have an opportunity to talk about Jesus, and maybe you're feeling nervous and you're feeling insecure of what to say. I don't know what to say. Sometimes... God does, in that moment, fill you suddenly with boldness, and then you speak. Or clarity of what to say, and then you speak. Other times, more often in my experience, it's when you actually open your mouth and start talking in simple trust. Take that first step that God comes in his power, and he helps you. Now, maybe you look back and say, oh, shoulda, woulda, coulda. I've had those moments. But, in those moments, the Lord loves to meet us. When we are prayerful, when we ask Him for help, Lord, help, I don't know what to say. I need power. I need your help. I'm weak. This person's smarter than me. This person has got a lot more experience than me. Whatever it is, I, am, I need your wisdom to just open my mouth and say something about Jesus, what he's done for me. Open your mouth. Speak. And pray, pray, pray that the Lord give you the power to be clear as you talk about the resurrection of Jesus. 
great power to witness for Jesus is available to us by the same Spirit who rested upon the apostles. These guys were just fishermen. Just like you and I are, we're not, we're nothing special in and of ourselves. But we have the spirit of a living God with us and for us, strengthening us and empowering us to speak. But we have to, as Peter did, right, and discovered, when he, you have to step out of the boat and the living God meets you with his strength. The second thing that was upon this community in a powerful way is something, like I mentioned, that doesn't come across in all the English translations quite as clearly, so you don't necessarily see it as connected if they, don't, if they leave out the word grace. Um, like I think the NASB says abundant grace. That's another way of saying great. That's fine. Great, abundant, lots of it. Um, it's, it's a fair translation, so I'm not trying to pick on translation. What, one unfortunate thing is it just if you translate the word great three different ways... Great, lots, much, whatever. I mean, you could do that. That's a good translation. Any translator would say, yeah, that's fair enough. There's a lot of ways you could translate the word great um, from one language into another. But you just, if you tweak it, you miss that, hey, this is the same word. And if you're not reading the Greek, you're reading English, like most of us do. Even I know Greek, and I'm in my personal Bible times, usually I'm not reading Greek, I'm reading English. So you're not going to see those connections. So that's just the only thing is... Um, I'm, like I said, I'm not picking on translations. I don't want to say, like, your translation's bad. It's a good translation. It just, sometimes, it might miss something like that. So that's why a commentary is helpful. It'll point out <coughs> Or maybe your Bible, your study Bible might in your notes. And so this is, great grace was upon them. Verse 33. The word grace is a word that basically means a gift that is given. Another way grace is often translated in the Bible is the word favor. Noah found favor in God's eyes. Grace. A favor is a blessing, a gift, a benefit that you show somebody. I showed you favor on your birthday. Why? Because it was your birthday. You can grace somebody because it's their birthday. And... We tend to do that on their birthdays. We give them gifts. We grace them. Or you could grace somebody, show them favor on their worst day. <clears throat> That's what God does for us. That's what makes the grace of God unique. Is that His grace also extends to the worst day. So the, the word grace or the word gift has the same basic meaning in Old and New Testament. And... Ultimately, God's grace, his greatest gift to us, is Jesus. Is his own life in the person of his son. Jesus is the favor of God to us. Jesus is the gift of God to us. So somebody says, what is the grace of God? It's his favor to us. And how does he show his favor to us? Well, lots of ways, right? Food, life, breath. Home. You can name a thousand ways, but all of it comes through the Creator, Jesus, who made it all. Jesus is the source of all God's favor. Every grace that we experience in this life is through Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God to us. He is the gift of salvation, ultimately. Salvation comes from Him, 
happens through him and brings us home to him. It's all from Christ, through Christ, to Christ. Salvation is by grace. By grace you are saved. By gift you are saved. By Christ you are saved. It's all the same. Jesus is the gift of God. Grace to us. He is a person. We have received the grace of God. And when we get it, truly get it, deep down, that we have been favored, not because we deserve it, but because He is good, we as a community, the early church as a community, became a gracious community. A community that was gracious in their behavior towards others. I'm going to read, instead of reading first how Luke describes it in Acts, I want you to read how the Apostle Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8, he says this. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. It says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So, God gave the churches of Macedonia a great grace. He gifted them with a grace, a gift of their own. And this is what their grace looked like. Yes, he gave them Jesus, and now Jesus produces grace in them. They start to show grace themselves. People who have been graced by God then start to show grace. Listen to how the Macedonian churches showed grace, favor to others. In the midst of a severe trial, things were really hard in their lives. They didn't have a lot. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, 2. Their overflowing joy, why are they happy? Because they've been graced by God. And their extreme poverty, they have joy and they have nothing. <laughs> wow. How can you be joyful and have nothing? Or very little. It welled up in rich generosity. I mean, all the contrasts here are amazing. They're extremely poor, and yet they have generous, rich generosity. Even though they were suffering, they were extremely generous. Why? Verse 3 of chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians 4. I testify they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave just as they gave themselves, first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel. So now Paul's saying, watch, he's talking to the Corinthian church, and he's saying the Macedonian churches, they were super poor, and they excelled in grace and in giving to meet the needs of saints in Jerusalem. And now he's saying, oh Corinthians, you who are really wealthy, you... He says, complete this act of grace on your part. See that you excel in this grace of giving. So, big picture, God is a gracer who graces his people with generous and glad hearts to show that same grace to others with gifts. And it's all because we have been gifted by God. This is what Paul says now. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, For, here's your motivation for giving. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So this is the story of the gospel. The, the Jesus who created everything, who possesses everything, made himself nothing, born in a stable, in a manger, becoming a servant, emptying himself. The richest became a, the poorest of the poor, emptied himself even of life on the cross that we might receive God's grace, God's favor, the life of God through him for eternity. When a community experiences grace like this and gets gripped by the Jesus story of the giving grace of God, they start to become a grace-giving community. Graced people grace others when they truly see what grace is. That's what Luke means when he says great grace was upon them all in Acts. And this is how he starts to unpack it. Look at how he unpacks it. Verse 32. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. Grace, grace was upon them. Verse 33. So that, verse 34. Here's the proof of it. There were no needy persons among them. How? Luke explained. How did they eliminate need? Well, here was one way they did it. And he, he explains for from time to time, those who owned houses or lands sold them and brought the money for the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So extreme generosity is at play here. Great favor that they're showing each other. Great grace. Again, when humans, like you and I, when we are just gripped, blown away by the generosity that God has showed us, even though we don't deserve it, in and of ourselves, even on our best days, we start to become people who are stirred to give grace rather than respond to evil and suffering around us with violence and anger and fear. We respond with Grace. Great grace was on this community. And the Lord gives it, and Luke, the Lord through Luke, gives a key example of what this looked like next. Verses 36 and 37. There's a guy named Joseph. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he lived in Cyprus. The apostles had a name for him. They called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The reason he was called Barnabas is because of his character. We read multiple stories about Barnabas in the book of Acts. One really important one was in Acts chapter 9. Remember that uh, the Apostle Paul used to not always be the Apostle Paul? He was a guy named Saul murdering Christians. And when he got saved in Damascus, he started preaching the gospel. They tried to kill him there. And so he went back to his home turf, Jerusalem. And 
Did the Christians in Jerusalem trust the guy who was trying to murder them a few months ago? No. Like, yeah. You want to come worship with us because you love Jesus? Sure you do. You just want to get a list of names so that you can drag everybody off to prison next week. No. And Barnabas stands up and says, guys, this is the real deal. And he goes and he takes Paul, Saul at the time, under his wing. He's an encourager. He gives him a second chance, right? This murderer, this guy who helped murder a hero of the early church, Stephen, Barnabas graces him. Great grace on Barnabas, right? And he shows Paul favor. We could tell other stories about Barnabas, but for time, we'll move on. So this is a story that sets the stage for the next story, okay? So Barnabas sells a field, and now, in Acts chapter 5, two members of the early church do something terrible that results in the heavy discipline of the Lord falling on them and great fear of God falling on the whole church. So this is the third thing that the church was marked by. Remember? Great power, great grace, and great fear. So I'll read the story of Ananias and Sapphira again. And I'll make a few comments as we read along. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, just like Joseph or Barnabas did. Okay? Verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he, Ananias, kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So, so here we see his wife sit on this with him. Okay? Now, at first glance, it's a little hard to see what the problem here is. I don't know if you feel that a little bit. He's giving his money. What's so bad about him only giving part of his money? Shouldn't he have the right to give? Like you don't give every dime you have to the Lord. What's wrong with giving part and keeping some? Stay tuned. Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and has kept for yourself some of the money you received from the Lord? Notice that Ananias here has been filled with deceit. By the father of lies, Satan. And so has Sapphira. This story taps back to the very beginning of the Bible. Two humans, man and wife, filled with deceit by Satan, resulting in death. Okay? This is <coughs> another fall narrative, and it's happening in the early church. Tragically. They've been filled with deceit by Satan, which stands in sharp contrast to the filling of the Holy Spirit that the church has been filled with. Within the church that's been filled with the Spirit, you have two individuals who've been filled by Satan. And what have they been filled with? Lies. Deceit. They are not who they say they are. They're not doing what they are saying they're doing. It's tragic what's going on. 
In verse 4, we get a glimpse further into what's going on. Peter says, didn't it, the property, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? So there's not a renouncing of private property here. Ananias, it was yours. Your land. There's nothing wrong with that. Next question. After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal, Ananias? The answer is yes. He could have done whatever he wanted with the money. Final question. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So there's something about the way that he was giving his money that um, he, he could have done anything he wanted with his money, but there was something about what he was doing that was deceitful, what he chose to do. Verse 5. When Ananias hears this pronouncement, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Great fear. Verse 6, then some young men came forward. They buried him. About three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asks her, tell me, is this the price that you guys got for the land? And, and Sapphira says, yes, that's the price. And here we see what's going on become more clear. Both Ananias and his wife, listen carefully, they both had agreed on a price to tell the apostles that was lower than the price that they'd actually gotten for the land. So here, here's an illustration for you. Imagine there's a Christian man in our community who decides to sell his house and a whole bunch of his assets and go live with his kids, right? And he, he sells his house, he sells a whole bunch of his assets at an auction, Christian guy. And he gets 500000 for it, let's say. And he gives it all to a missionary to help build a hospital in Kenya. The price is known, the public. He, he keeps back nothing for himself. A radical gift. A huge grace, right? So big that he gets a nickname. The encourager. Start calling him, man, it's an encouragement. Because you, your, your choice to do that has inspired me. He's, he's an encourager to the church. He becomes famous in the early church for his generosity, for the great grace that's upon him. Not in a way that puffs him up, but in a way that puts the focus on Jesus' work in his life. So imagine, um, right, that this guy's story is told. And So imagine that I'm watching this, and I see that, and I get inspired to sell some property that I own. Let's say that I own a dream hunting camp in the Adirondacks, 100 acres. Prime property. It will never happen, right? But imagine that I decide to sell it, and I sell it for 500 grand to somebody from who knows where that's willing to pay that much. Downstate. Yeah, somebody from downstate who, who, who gets suckered into buying this ramshackle cabin on 100 acres, right? And I sell it for half a million dollars, 500 grand, but I tell everybody I sold it for 300,000. And... I make this huge to-do about putting $300,000 in the offering plate. With the extra 200 grand, I buy a vacation home in Florida. Right? That's a silly analogy, 
Okay, but it's similar in some ways to what's going on here. They want to look good. They want to look generous. They want to look like they're filled with the same gracious gift-giving spirit that Barnabas had. Maybe they even wanted new names, like Barnabas, to become famous for their generosity. But there's a problem. They also wanted some fast cash. So they lie to make themselves look good. Instead of being filled with a great grace, they're filled with deception and with Satan's will to twist the truth. In verse 8, we see they're both agreed on this lie. They have a set sum of what they said they were going to say the price was. If they ask you, you say we got 300 grand. Okay? Don't tell what we really got. We don't we want to look more generous than we really are. Verse 9 now. Peter said to Sapphira, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the man who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment she fell down dead at his feet. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This story is probably among one of the most shocking stories in the New Testament. Many people think of the God of the Old Testament as harsh, maybe, quick to punish his people, and maybe that the God of the New Testament is like a big teddy bear now that Jesus has come. That's not correct, actually. The, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same Lord. And we see here a great fear of this Lord falls on the early church. Now, what the fear of the Lord is, it's a, it's a reverence and a respect for Him that's born out of an awe at how mighty He is and how much He hates evil and deceit, and lying, and all that is not good, and right, and beautiful in his creation, all that is twisted and dark, he hates it, all that Satan stands for, the Lord hates, and here we see Satan, the great enemy of the Lord, and of his church, has entered in the hearts of two Christians, in the church, through their love of money, and their love of the praise of man, and God steps in, and puts them to death on the spot. Perhaps they had heart attacks. We don't know what means the Lord uses to put them to death. This theme of two humans dying in the presence of God, experiencing death in God's presence, goes all the way back to Genesis. And it's a theme that weaves throughout the stories of the Old Testament. A priest named Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and both died for their rebellion to the Lord. A priest, Aaron, had two sons, Nadab and Abihu, both died in the temple in the presence of the Lord for their rebellion against the Lord. Adam and Eve, filled with the spirit of deception, <coughs> buying into Satan's life, experienced 
death by being cut off from the tree of life and eventually died. And here we have another couple in the Bible's story, two human beings who experienced death in the presence of the Lord because of their choice to be filled with deceit and with the temptations of the devil. Same God, same story. And great fear falls on the church. We talked about a similar thing that was happening when we looked at the letter to the Corinthians. You may remember in chapter 11, the early church was doing terrible things, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and abusing each other during that meal. And Paul says, because of the sin that you've been tolerating, some of you are sick and some of you have even fallen asleep. Which by that he means, that's the Christian word for death. They've died. All Christians get sick from time to time, right? All Christians die, unless Christ returns now. So just because you're sick, or just because you drop down and die, or just because you grow old and die, or you have a tragic accident and die, just because tragedy happens to a Christian, it does not mean that that Christian is under the judgment of God's discipline. However, if you claim to be a Christian, and you are living in great sin and deception, or if a Christian that you know is living in sin, that they're not repenting of, and they keep on in it, and it seems like their life starts falling apart, or your life starts falling apart, and everything hits the fan. And this Christian, or you, you get sick and maybe even die. It's passages like this that encourage us to interpret those things as the discipline of the Lord. And when the discipline of God falls on his church like this, there's at least three things that God is doing. The first thing that God is doing with severe, heavy discipline like this on a church is stopping the sin from getting worse. If Ananias and his wife had kept going down this path of deception, who knows where their fame would have landed them. I think what they did here was very significant, or Luke would not have included it. It was probably a very large sum of money and they stood to gain greatly from this in power in the early church. Power through deception. There are things that are worse than death, and one of them is living a lie. Second, so God is stopping it before the train gets out of control. In discipline like this, God is also purifying his church of the cancer of sin and deceit that can spread like wildfire when it takes root in a church community. Purify his people. And third and finally, God is warning all his people of the seriousness of sin. This third and final result is what's most clear here in Acts 5 because two times we learn that great fear Fear of the Lord fell upon the church as a result of this incident. So, to conclude 
what we've seen today from this passage. The sign of God at work in a people is great power, great grace, and great <coughs> So our application, I just wanted to think briefly about each one of these marks. Just like the early church, our little church, New Creation Church of Granville, New York, we have a great and mighty power with us here this morning in our midst. The very powerful spirit of God who raised Jesus to life from the dead is with us. Jesus says it. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he loves to give his people power to do his work. We are a tiny group. Smaller today, because we've got people traveling. Yet we have a big and powerful spirit who is with us and for us and in us. Every one of you who trusts in Jesus today, you are evidence of the power that the spirit is at work changing lives. So I want us to join our hearts together. We'll pray in a few minutes and ask God to fill us afresh with power. Power to fight sin. Power to love people boldly and bravely and power to speak. To tell people about Jesus and the freedom found in him. Just like the early church, we have the power of God with us. Let's ask God to help us be bold with that power. Second, just like the early church, our church community is a church that has been shown the great favor of Jesus. There's been much evidence of God's grace at work in our midst over the past few years. We want to see more. More of God's grace, God's favor, as we seek to pour out favor grace, kindness on each other, regardless of worth or whether we feel someone deserves it. We want to be a gracious community. And there's only one way to fire, to kindle the fire of grace in your heart. If I'm out in nature and I'm getting really cold and I make a fire, and the fire starts to get out, go out, and I get cold again, you've got to kindle that fire. If the fires of grace in your life and favor in your life towards other people, if you're cynical towards other people, if you're bitter towards other people, if you're angry at other people regularly, that the rhythms of your heart is anger, anger, pain, other people hurt me, other people, other people, there is only one way to kindle in your heart grace favor towards other people and that is to look again look afresh at the grace of God to you in your sin Jesus has graced you and you didn't deserve it you never deserved it that is what stirs our hearts up to be gracious to other people there's no other way in a cancel culture where somebody says something wrong and the internet wants to cancel them forever. God's people have an opportunity to be a people of grace. Mixed with truth, right? We don't tell lies about who people are. We 
and we show them grace. And the final mark of the church of Jesus in the first century is one that is very foreign in our day and age, and that is fear. There is very little fear of God in the church of Jesus Christ in the West. God's chill. He's cool. He's fun. God's nice. He wants me to be happy. He wants my friends to be happy. We don't tend to view God as a being of infinite, omnipotent power. A being with power that is more mighty than a trillion, trillion suns and stars. A being who causes earthquakes when he shows up. Who speaks with the sound of thunder. Who sets mountains on fire. A being who is the source of all life and breath that is currently coursing through the lungs of every organism on land and every gill of every creature in the sea. We don't tend to tremble, even though we're told over and over in the Bible to come before the Lord with fear and trembling. It's so foreign to us. We might even recoil in our hearts at a God like that. He doesn't sound nice. He doesn't sound safe. But there's the God that we want. And then there's the God who is. And we must bow before the God who is in reverent fear, in awe, in adoration. The living God is not safe. In the words of the author to the Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. He is not safe. But as C.S. Lewis, writing about Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia says, some of you are very familiar with this, it's a powerful phrase. He is not safe, this terrifying lion, but he is good. He is good. This is our God. May the, may the, the goodness of God through Christ empower us to come into his presence with fear and trembling and awe at who he is. May the fear of the Lord stir your hearts this morning as it has stirred mine this week. Dating sin while we claim to worship Jesus is a disaster. And you could wind up dead. None of us know what the eternal destiny of Ananias and Sapphira was. We don't know what their eternal destiny was. And I don't think we should speculate too much. They're in the hands of their judge. Every human on the planet dies. Their death just got sped up as a result of their actions. But the point of this story is to inspire in our hearts a reverent fear of the Lord, a holy fear, a proper trembling before our God our creator, our king, the one who put the breath in our lungs, the lord of the universe. He is not safe. He's a fire. He's mighty. Beyond your wildest imagination, we are specks. He is the ageless eternal one. And yet, he is gracious and good. And that should lead us to tremble with joy in reverence in his presence. So let's pray now to our Creator. Lord, 
You are good. I pray that you would fill our hearts with awe at your power and your greatness even as you thrill us with your goodness. I pray that you would work fear of God in our hearts, that you would work the grace of God in our lives, that we would just want to show favor to people because we have been favored. We have been graced. We have been gifted with your very self in the person of your Son, and I pray that you would help us as a church to be filled with great power. May we be channels for resurrection power to work through us and in us. I just ask that you would do this for your sake. Make us a community of great power, great courage, and great fear. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.